How great thou art. What a beautiful song and what a challenging song as it reminds us of the marvelous and so powerful God that we serve today. Surely as we gather together this morning, we're exceedingly thankful for the privilege and yeah, great blessing it is. We're glad that everyone is here, our membership, our visitors alike, and we hope that each one will be encouraged and you and I will be edified in the most holy faith by our assembly here today. You may have already noticed on the wall on both my left and right, the lesson and its title today are these, Present at the Cross. For the next few moments this morning, let's give some consideration. Let's in fact reflect using that text we noted earlier, the scenes of some of the events that took place at the cross. And maybe we'll do it in a somewhat novel way, admittedly. And these introductory thoughts, I hope, will move us on our way in the lesson this morning. Isn't it an interesting thing as you look at some of those comments? The day that our Savior was nailed to the cross surely is one of the most momentous events in the history of the human family. Arguably, perhaps only surpassed by that day three days later when He was resurrected. The fact is, though, that He is critically involved in both those events. And yet, as you reflect on the cross... It's so easy for you and me, these 20 centuries or so removed from it, to be divorced from the reality of both the agony as well as the tremendous challenge and stress of that day. But you'll notice on that slide, in the, in the spring of 30 A.D., they did nail Jesus to a cross. That is a historical fact. I know there have been individuals who've tried to reason it away. They've claimed that somehow or other it really never happened, but that just isn't so. He was crucified. But you might notice there's a whole lot of people in the Bible who were said to be there. I'd like to suggest every one of us, at least in a sense, were there as well. And so today, let's look through the eyes of some of those individuals that were there and let's see if we see ourselves. I might suggest some of these eyes through whom we look will be eyes and the picture will not be terribly good. I might suggest if you or I fall in that category, change something. It's time to repent. It's time to go in a different direction in life. But through some of those eyes, you and I may well see a pristine picture of those who behave with a heart of purity. If we're like that, we'll be encouraged. Let me say as we, you and I close that slide, as we look for ourselves, I've chosen four using these individuals here, and here's the first one. Those who were compelled that day. Now let me begin by asking you to note this. You and I remember that Jesus, of course, had appeared before the Jewish officials, and the previous night they condemned Him, guilty of blasphemy. And you and I recall that the Jews no longer had the power, in fact, of, of capital punishment. And so they took Jesus to Pilate. And before that Roman official, our Savior appeared. Now you and I will never forget the fact Pilate three times said, I find no fault in him. Pilate didn't find him worthy of death. Pilate did not find Jesus worthy of that which they, in fact, accused him. But yet... You notice on that slide, Pilate caved into the pressure of those Jewish officials. Despite the fact Pilate said, I find no fault in him, they said, crucify him. They weren't interested in justice, and for the most part, Pilate wasn't either. 
They were interested in having what they wanted. They wanted this man out of the way. He so often taught that which didn't look so well from their perspective. Surely, as you and I add that third comment, Pilate finally had this brilliant idea. I tell you what, he said, there's a gentleman in prison. His name is Barabbas. How about if I release him? It would appear from the perspective of the language that Pilate felt as if that would appease the Jews. He felt as if that would satisfy their demand, but it did not. They said, you give us Barabbas, you release Barabbas, kill Jesus. Those kind of thoughts, of course, in, to you and me seem so shocking because there's such injustice in it. It's at this point we arrive at the gentleman that will be the centerpiece of this first part of the lesson. And so it was that Pilate declared Jesus to be scourged and then he was to move toward that place of crucifixion, that mound called Golgotha. And as he directed himself, walking apparently very slowly in that way, the Roman officials, there was a man standing by. His name was Simon. In an interesting twist, those Roman officials said, Hey, you, you come here and help bear the cross. And the text says they compelled him. So here was a gentleman who was compelled, coerced, forced. He didn't do it willingly. He didn't volunteer for this activity. He did it forcibly. It's at that point we then notice it would appear that Simon was just a casual bystander. It would appear that he was merely watching the events of that day. Jesus moving His way slowly, perhaps somewhat near where He stood. And yet He now found Himself thrust into the very center of the attention. You help bear His cross. It's at that point we come to notice the word compel means to force. It again means that you aren't doing it voluntarily. Somebody's making you do it. In this occasion, it was the Roman officials making Him participate in the very events surrounding the cross. What about the questions for you and me? Today, in service to Jesus Christ, there still are some who are compelled. That is to say, they don't do it out of a willing heart, a voluntary heart. They do it more or less because they feel as though they have to. Sometimes a husband or a wife, maybe the husband comes to church services because more or less the wife makes him. Well, that's not the best reason to come. And sometimes with regard to children, and you and I understand young children, they come because dad and mom take them and that's the way it's supposed to be. But there are times when that child reaches perhaps later teenage years and they still come more or less because dad and mom make them. They haven't developed a desire within themselves to come yet. They don't feel as if it's a willing thing. I'm made to do this. Perhaps another example, sometimes even those who are leaders amongst the church. You and I might consider, what about a preacher? Sometimes a preacher is more or less compelled in light of what he does because he's only in it for the paycheck. Now, if that's true, he's not right. The message he proclaims may be, but his heart isn't in it. The point you and I might say is, if one is compelled in light of service to God... That's not a good thing. 
God wants our heart, you see. He wants it to be a choice on our part because we love Him and we appreciate what Jesus did for us at the cross. I hope no one is here this morning because you feel compelled to be here. If you do, you need to repent. And you need to begin working toward an appreciation in life such that it's the yearning, the heartfelt desire of your most powerful aspect of your being is that you want nothing more than to be the servant of the, of the one who died for you. To be compelled, you see, causes us near the bottom of that slide to consider some of these verses. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 122 verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up to the house of the Lord. Were you glad that it was Sunday? Every one of us need to ask that question. Were you glad for it to be Sunday morning and you could come to the assemblies of the church? Or did you feel compelled? Oh, it's Sunday again. I guess i got to go. If that's the way you felt, do you really think you're going to enjoy heaven even if you get there? That's a strong question, and I ask that only because the Bible on so many occasions says, texts like Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, when Jesus was asked, What is the greatest commandment? He replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. There is no commandment greater than this. Again, that challenges every one of us, doesn't it? Because you see, the Lord on these occasions doesn't want someone compelled. He wants someone who has volunteered their heart and who gives the fullness of their service to the very one who is their master. Let's add another verse to that in Romans 1, verses 14 to 16. As Paul addressed the opening comments to the church in Rome, wasn't it true that to them he said, I'm debtor to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. Paul, it seems, couldn't wait to get to Rome so he could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people, to those individuals. He wanted them to hear it. You'll notice inasmuch as Paul felt that way, he was a man given to the service of the Master. One last passage in Luke 9, 23. Jesus put it like this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Simon was compelled. I hope you and I, when we reach that point of adulthood, we won't feel compelled, but we'll serve the Lord because we want to. We thrill in it. We find excitement in it. And not only that, we appreciate that in it, we look forward to an eternal reward with the one who is conscripting our life in the way he would wish it to be. Not only was a man compelled... Here's another word that begins with the letter C. There were a lot of people in the surrounding environs of the cross that were careless. Careless. Let's develop that by adding some additional thoughts. Remember that once Jesus Himself was in the midst of those trials, we have an interesting image of some soldiers and what they were doing in the very presence of the Master. I would call to your attention Luke 23 verse 36. That's a rather brief verse, and it reads like this. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar. Isn't it interesting? They mocked him. 
Here was the ruler of the universe. Here was by far the greatest being on earth at the time, Jesus. He could work miracles. He could raise the dead. He had in fact illustrated and demonstrated so many things in their presence. And these soldiers, these soldiers, they were mocking Him. And in other verses say they were casting lots, dividing His garments. They wanted part of the clothes He was wearing and they were in essence playing a game to see who would get it. All of that while the very Son of God was about to be crucified. Talk about carelessness. What about Herod? Early in Luke chapter 23, we have this observation. Herod, it seems, at one time was rather excited to see Jesus. And yet, verses 7 and 8 detail the main reason he wanted to see Jesus is he wanted Jesus to perform a miracle for him. He wanted a magic show. He wanted a sideshow. He wasn't interested in the truth. He wasn't interested in what Jesus could tell him to save his soul. He was interested in being entertained. That isn't a good reflection on Herod. I might say, as you and I go further, there were many religious leaders also at the time that were rather careless. Again, the very one, and they of all people should have known who he was. The Old Testament testified of him, and they were experts in that but they still weren't happy with this supposed Messiah. He didn't teach what they wanted to hear, and He didn't present the kind of life they wanted to follow. And therefore, it was their insistence that He be put to death, to be crucified. And so those religious leaders too acted exceedingly carelessly. As you and I reach the point of making that observation about us, and it's still very possible for an individual to be careless in the very face of the cross. Consider the events of our assemblies. As we've already mentioned in passing, we have the precious opportunity to arrive at a place where the crucifixion of Jesus and all the livelihood that goes with it is honored and it's respected and His Word is lifted to the absolute zenith of existence because that's the way He intended it. And yet, it would be very possible for you or for me to act carelessly, to not give much attention to these things, to pass through the sojourn of life and give all our attention to these other things rather than what's the most important. Remember, the soldiers, and they were in the very consideration of Jesus was nearby and they ignored Him. They mocked Him, parting His garments, if you please, by casting lots. Why don't we add this to that? There are those who live in the very presence of truth. I mean in the very presence of it, and they choose to reject it. Individuals who even attend a number of assemblies, and time after time the assembly is held, and songs to God are, are offered to Him, and the Lord's Supper is observed, and prayers are offered, and the gospel invitation is extended, and they don't ever heed it. How can that be? What thinking would prompt one to behave like this? Isn't it careless? What if the Lord had been careless with respect to going to Calvary? Then you and I would still be in sin and we'd be headed for hell. Because didn't Jesus say, No man cometh unto the Father but by me, John 14, 6. If He hadn't gone to the cross, we would have no hope. We would have no chance. But because He did... 
We know there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. To borrow the wording of Romans 8 verse 1, Are you and I then walking after the flesh, which would be careless? Or are we walking after the Spirit, which would be wise? You notice there were many at the cross who were rather careless. And oh, how tragic. Let's proceed to note some of these verses. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, there's another reference to carelessness. As there it is highlighted that even as it takes us back to recollections of Esau and others, that they were motivated with bitterness and with envy. And that kind of carelessness, of course, God frowned upon. It challenges us in a very dramatic way, doesn't it? Simon was compelled. A whole bunch of others were careless. And again, it isn't good. Let's look at some additional verses. Jesus put before every one of us, arguably, one of the most challenging and yet one of the most timeless of all verses in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37. You and I know it well. It's been ingrained in our thinking. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And the Lord prefaced that by saying, as He described the characteristics, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, if you and I are living carelessly today and other days, it's not God's fault. He has encouraged us with wisdom and insight and truth. I would ask you to perhaps think about a poem. Unfortunately, I do not know the author nor do I even know the name. I ran across this many years ago, and it's such a challenging poem, and it goes like this. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I cherish and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge come in when my task is through, my spirit forgetting great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find? All that I've worked for, I've left behind. Oh, what a challenging words. Indeed, out of this world I'm unable to take. All these things that surround you and I physically, it reminds us time and again, we're not to love the world or the things in it. 1 John 2.15 the last verse is at the bottom. It's true then, isn't it, that one could be present at the cross, but maybe one is present carelessly. The Bible doesn't look with favor upon this either. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, the inspired writer pointed out, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And there it was. The inspired apostle pointing out that there will be those that will reap the eternal vengeance of the Master. And in so doing, it will be those who first didn't love the Lord, and those who didn't obey the gospel. Obedience to the gospel is that fundamental. And it's that which is so simple, at least in terms of ID. And so it begs the question, may you and I never be careless. What about a third category? 
There were those that were compelled like Simon. There were those that were careless like the soldiers and others. What about those who complained? That is to say, those who were clamoring, complaining. Let's journey a little bit more forward in our discussion. So, we had a moment ago, Jesus was on trial. He had been brought to the appreciation of the greatness of these events. He appeared before Pilate. And Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus, of course, in dramatic character, responded. And as we come to this, we now notice the proceedings relative to the crucifixion went onward. They arrived at the place of crucifixion. It wasn't just Jesus. There was a thief on each side of Him. There were three crucified that day. And these comments now come before us. Verse number 39 of our text again reads like this. John read it in our hearing a moment ago, but it says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. One of those thieves continued by railing on Jesus. Now I might say that at this point, notice that word railed means this thief had strong words to say to Jesus. The thief was being crucified, Jesus was being crucified, and yet this thief railed on Jesus. This thief had enough energy, yet in his body he could speak with strength and directness. He could insult the Master and he could blaspheme the nature of what he was failing to do. You noticed what the thief said. If thou be Christ, if you are who you say you are, save us. Might we say this thief had sinned. Notice he had been guilty of vile things. He'd been guilty of ungodly things. He was there justly. And yet he wanted out of it. He wanted now to be relieved, if you please, from the consequences of his actions. I use that word complaining to to highlight. As far as we can tell, based on the four gospel accounts, there was a time both of the thieves were in fact somewhat railing against Jesus. But one of them changed his mind. The other one never did. He continued to rail on Jesus. As you and I develop that point, it brings us to make application. Again, here's an individual in the very presence. So he too, just like the other thief, would have had the opportunity to make some changes. He would have had the opportunity to change his perspective and outlook, but he never did. Doesn't it remind us that sometimes those statements at the bottom, there are individuals who it seems wish to blame everybody else for the circumstances of their life. My brother's fault, my sister's fault, my dad and mom's fault, well, grandma and grandpa, my neighbors, the principal and everybody else. You and I must remember, we're accountable beings. We make our choices. Now, that's not to say that the choices others make might not have impact for us. But in the final analysis, we are accountable and we're responsible. If I'm lost at the day of judgment, you won't be responsible for that. Now, you may have done things, said things, or in fact had part to play in it, but in the final analysis, it shall be my decision. 
And the same is true for you. At this point, let's look at some of these verses. In Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus made this dramatic statement. He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you want rest? Do you want to be eased from the burdens of this life? The Lord is the one and only answer. Now notice, he didn't say, blame it on your parents, blame it on your family, blame it on where you live. That never entered the master's mind. Our society, I realize, has fallen into the trap of thinking that the buck can be passed and the blame rests with everybody but me. I'm never the one at fault, many seem to think. And that's nonsense. I think a constant reminder to that is the picture, the image that's given to us relative to the day of judgment. Don't you? On that day of judgment, you might appreciate with me in texts like Matthew 25, verses 14 and following. Jesus spoke about on that occasion how that all nations would be gathered before Him. And then as He looks at those on the left and as He looks at those on the right, He says, you didn't do some things. They were never allowed to pass the book. You didn't visit the sick. You didn't feed the hungry. You didn't minister to those in prison. You didn't give water to those that were thirsty. And on down the list the Lord went, but they were the one who for their failures were in fact judged guilty. But on the other hand, those that were judged faithful, they had done those things. And they too never had an interest to pass the buck. But isn't it true? Neither one was given the opportunity. Later in Revelation, when that image is given to us again, one more time the scene reads somewhat like this. Revelation twenty-two twelve. Everyone was judged according to their works. Did you note the possessive character of there? It's not somebody else's works, it's their works. It's an interesting truth, isn't it? That as you and I come near the close of that slide, Hebrews 7.25 reads it like this. God is able through Christ to save to the uttermost them that come to God by Him. That, of course, includes each of us. At this point, we've noticed some were compelled in relation to the cross. Others were careless and some were complaining. Category number four is the last one. As we look at this, let's turn our attention to the next slide, which takes us to the other thief. Remember, there were two thieves, and though both originally, it seems, were railing on Jesus, and one never changed, the other one did. And so you'll notice at the top, one of those thieves had a change of heart. He came to think with carefulness. He came to be observant in regard to who he was and who the Master was. And that change of heart prompted him to make a statement. I'd like to read again Luke 23, verse number 40 and following. But the other answering rebuked him. So here's one thief rebuking the other thief. Dost not thou fear God? Seeing thou art in the same condemnation, this thief, this person who admittedly had done things in error, he now rebukes the other thief for his carelessness and his complaining attitude. And verse 41 says, We indeed justly. 
we have no reason to complain. We're getting what we justly deserve. We transgressed the law of society. We were guilty of stealing and thievery. We're here justly. For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Aren't you impressed with that thief? Remember, he had nails in his hands, and this thief was no doubt in great pain, and he had the nerve to say, this man has done nothing wrong, speaking of Jesus. And then the next verse says, And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. This thief, you see, had a far different attitude. He was convicted. He wasn't careless. He hadn't been compelled in the ways that, that Simon had been. And furthermore, he wasn't complaining any longer. He was convicted. And this man beside me, he knew to be the Son of God. He called Him Lord. Verse number 42 again says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew that that man had a kingdom. And he knew that he was going to reign over it. And he knew that he would have the opportunity to beseech him one final time for the nature and character. And that he did. It's at this point Jesus replied to him in verse 43, Verily I say unto thee today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? That man's sins had been forgiven. Now he lived prior, of course, to the day of Pentecost and the plan of salvation that you and I now live under. But the fact is, you'll notice verse 43, the Lord made a dramatic statement to him. Today, he said, today. They were both going to die that day, but today you'll be with me in paradise. Later in Acts chapter 2, of course, Jesus, we find... Peter's statement on that majestic day, Jesus had been in that place, and we, of course, appreciate here that that man who had been the thief was too. No wonder as you and I develop some of these points, this is where all of us need to be. Not careless, not compelled, not complaining, but convicted. Are you convicted with regard to the cross? In the book of Acts, we have some of these images Acts 8 verse 12 says, When Philip came into Samaria, when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. If you're convicted and you haven't been baptized, you will do so. Because that conviction will lead invariably to it. In Acts 18 8, when they in the city of Corinth, they were convicted. It says, Many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. If you're convicted, you will listen with care to the preaching of the truth of the Lord. The Bible will be such a meaningful thing to you. You'll believe Jesus with all of your heart to be the Son of God. You'll repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Notice that conviction, how it appears in Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16. Here, there had been a man. His name was Saul at that time. He had been such an opposer to the truth. He lived in defiance to Jesus. But yet on the road to Damascus, he spoke with him. That forever changed that man. You and I know him later as Paul. But when Ananias first met him in Acts 22, he said, Saul, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Saul, it's time to stop waiting. It's time to call on the Lord, and in so doing, you'll wash your sins away. Maybe there's someone in this audience, you had never called on the Lord. Oh, you know you need to, but 
Maybe the nerve or at least the conviction hadn't been present. May it be so today. If we could be of assistance to you to help you, we'd delight to do that. We'd rejoice to do that. As an alien sinner, you must believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, commanded, of course, in Acts 2, 38. You must confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, exemplified in Acts 8, 37. And you must be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, at that moment, as you contact the blood of Christ in baptism, that blood washes your sins away. You come forth from that watery grave, pure, sanctified, clean, holy. And then you are able to proceed through life holding hands with the Master and living faithfully to Him every day, Revelation 2, verse 10. But if you've stumbled and fallen, though faithful at one time, maybe you've become careless Maybe compelled is a better description of you. You only go through the motions in religion anymore. You realize that's not healthy. That's not good. Don't you want to again be convicted? And so you need to rededicate your life if that is your circumstance. Now may I say, you could walk down this aisle and you could ask for prayers of brethren. You could in fact invite them to pray to God on your behalf and James 5.16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that follows that presentation to confess your faults one to another. Today, it would be a great day, January the 28th, 2018. If today there would be anybody in this audience that would wish to respond publicly, we would urge you to come, invite you to come, and do it at once. While together we stand and while we sing.